Hello, everyone. My name is Sherry Rice, and I'm CEO of Access to Healthcare Network. Welcome to our podcast, Access to Health. Our goal is to bring you informative speakers from the healthcare industry to give you information that can help you make your healthcare decisions. Today, we are talking about the Nevada 2019 legislative session and the impact that it may have on your health care. My guests today are Catherine O'Mara, Executive Director of the Nevada State Medical Association, and Dr. Andy Pasternak, a local family practice physician and co-chair of the Nevada State Medical Association. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Let's start with a discussion on the Nevada State Medical Association. Let's talk a little bit about who it is, how it came to be, when it was formed. Um, when was it formed? Does anyone know? Cat, I'll let you. <laughs> well, the Nevada State Medical Association is the state's oldest and largest physician advocacy organization. I believe we were formed in 1875. It was a long time ago. It was yeah. a long time ago. You know, my Do notes, you have the you cheat got that sheet? right. 1875. <laughs> nice job. I know I won't be around for the 200th celebration, I don't think. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so the organization was formed by physicians who wanted to maintain a high level of professionalism among physicians, um, looking at things like education and ultimately making sure that the um, physician voice was heard in policy decision making. And is it statewide? It is statewide. With statewide offices. Um, yep, we are we are statewide. We have an office in Reno and in um, Las Vegas, and during the legislature in Carson City as well. And Dr. Pasternak, do you need to be a physician to join the uh, medical society? We actually have some physicians assistants uh, who can join, but the majority of uh, of, of our members are physicians. Uh, and so we have both uh, MDs, DOs from all over the state. Um, and it's a really, uh, I've been involved with it now over the past really decade or so. And it's, it's a, uh, the physicians that are involved are all in it because they want to make healthcare better in our state. So it's a, it's a really enjoyable organization to be a part of. And what about the Washoe County Medical Society? They've been around for a while, haven't they? So Washoe County is sort of a uh, a subset of of the NSMA. So we, within NSMA, we have Clark County has a medical association. We have a, a, a medical society up here in the north uh, for Washoe County. All the members who are part of Washoe County um, are also automatically members of the Nevada State Medical Association. And from a logistics standpoint, um, a lot of our policy making at the state level is done by the state societies as opposed to the individual county societies. And tell me a little bit about the advocacy piece of this, because that's what we're going to talk about today. How do they advocate and who does the advocacy? Well, I think to start, we, we have a very formal traditional process in setting our own policy agendas. Uh, the Nevada State Medical Association holds a House of Delegates, which is delegates from those component county societies that you were just asking about. So Washoe County sends some delegates, Clark County, Carson City, Douglas, and the rural areas send delegates to our annual meeting where they debate all kinds of policies. Um, should Nevada physicians support single payer? Should Nevada physicians support legalization of marijuana? Um, all of the really hot topics that I think we in the community are reading about in the newspaper um, are debated at those meetings. Once those resolutions are agreed upon or um, referred for more action, it helps direct our activities for that year and then into the next successive legislative um, sessions. Uh, I'll give you an example, which is in 2017, there was some legislation passed on prescribing of opioids, prescribing controlled substances. And we had a lot of feedback from our members, and we worked all through the interim process the interim period, which is the period in between the two legislative sessions, to try to figure out what would it be that would actually help uh, Nevada physicians um, navigate this law and help patients get the medications that they needed. Um, through the guidance of our policy committee and our House of Delegates, we determined this was going to be our number one priority going into 2019. And we did bring a law, a bill in um, 2019, AB 239, to change some of the workflow issues in opioid prescribing, and that ended up becoming our top priority legislatively. Does the uh, medical societies oversee any of the physician activities in our state? Um, I th 
not really oversee. I mean, I, I think we try to be a resource for a lot of the physicians. So we'll have issues where the physicians may notice something in their practice or, you know, one of these new laws gets enacted and they're like, how are we going to deal with this? So it's not really an oversight per se as, as it is more of a, a resource for physicians if they're having particular problems, uh, issues from a legislative session, issues with insurance companies, they can come to the, the state medical society and say, hey, we're seeing this, our other members seeing this, and then if, if, if it's something that the collective group of physicians is dealing with, then we'll try to figure out ways to, to solve some of those issues. So if, if they were having problems, say, with something with a hospital, they could come to you and you would advocate for them, step in? Or they're, yeah, or mediate or try to mediate some of the situations depending on, on what the conflict is. I saw in the material there was a Sierra Medical Political Action Committee. Is yes. that the committee of the Medical Society? So the political action committees are really, or PACs, are really the um, political contribution and assessment entities. So we have a Nevada Medical PAC, and then we also have in the North Sierra Political Action Committee, and in the South, the Medical Political Action Committee. We're actually moving forward to merge all of those into one Nevada Medical PAC um, that we believe will be finalized this September. Uh, and, and what we do there is we interview the candidates for office. Um, do we generally focus on the state offices because it's a state PAC. PAC. We don't contribute out of that PAC for federal offices. Um, but sometimes we will interview for like a sheriff's race if we think there's a medical aspect of it or a judge's race for the same reason. Uh, it's a great opportunity to connect the physicians to the actual um, candidates to ask them questions. You know, how do you feel about um, laws that interfere with a physician and patient's relationship? Um, what would you do if someone came to you and said that, um, you know, their insurance premiums are too much? and they can't find a physician on their network. Like, will you work with us in the legislative session? And then we, um, that PAC also does give contributions um, to those candidates that we think will best address health care in the state. And is that a fundraising entity? It is, yep. It's a separate entity from NSMA, um, which is a 501c6. It is an actual registered PAC. Um, so it does its own separate, has its own separate board of directors, and it does its own separate fundraising. So does that... PAC donate money to local candidates? It does, yes. Fabulous. And they, and so people on the committee get to decide how much and where the donations go. That's exactly right. Fabulous. Um, what, how would you say that the Nevada State Medical Association or the local ones like Washoe County Medical Society, how would you say that they impact the average Nevadan? Because I think most Nevadans don't even realize that, uh, that it is impacting them. Well, I, I really look at it as, you know, before every legislative session, um, Kat and our our team really sits down and starts to go through through all the bills. And I think this year there was something like over a thousand bills. Mm -hmm. And I think we, we determined it was like over 200 were related to health care in some way, shape or form. And, you know, I think for, for general members of the public, there's so many issues going on. Uh, most people aren't going to be aware of all these issues. And so, you know, we're really trying to look at this from the standpoint of let's look at these bills. Let's look at how these bills are going to affect how physicians care for people in our community. Uh, and let's make sure some of the bills are done in a way that um, it it really helps people in our community. And that's really, you know, ultimately when we're looking at these bills, that's kind of the the, the ultimate test is we look at the bill and we say, do we think this is going to improve the health of our community or do we think this is going to impact, you know, uh, impact the health of our community? Um, and, you know, let's try to weigh in on those on those situations. I'll give you an example if there's time. Um, AB 170 was a bill brought forward by Assemblywoman Ellen Spiegel out of Las Vegas. Um, and the intent was to help patients who cannot seem to get into a doctor. They, they have insurance, but the people on their panels cannot see them for three to six months. They've been told you need to get in to see someone as soon as possible. Um, it was uh, the bill as drafted was, you know, heavily debated and fighted over between um, the insurance industry and those of us who see ourselves on the side of the patient. Um, ultimately, this bill ended up being a protection for pre-existing conditions, which means that if the ACA goes away, uh, Nevada will still protect pre-existing conditions. And it also includes a little provision in there that requires every insurance company to register a case 
person, a case management person with the Office of Consumer Health Advocate. Now, that seems like a very small thing and and maybe not even easy to understand. But what that will do is any patient who has insurance and cannot get in to see a physician can call that Office of Consumer Health Advocate, work with them, have them help work with their insurance to find a provider or physician that can see them within a reasonable time. Um, It will help us track whether or not insurance um, products have what we call robust networks, that they're actually offering adequate networks for their insureds, and it will also be a way to directly help that individual person. Because now there is a person on the other end of that line that is not loyal to the insurance industry or a physician, but is only loyal to the people of Nevada that will help them navigate the process. That's one simple bill out of hundreds of bills where we got involved to make sure that something effective came out of that original bill. And how will they, what will be the oversight to make sure that they have robust networks? We all know that's an issue. We're all in the healthcare industry. We know that's an issue. Well, that's a tough issue. You know, um, Nevada regulates only a certain percentage of insurance plans because most plans are federally regulated or really have very little regulation at all. And I see you smiling, so I know you understand what I'm talking about. For those listening, there's some grins going on in the room. Um, uh, under the Division of Insurance, under the Nevada Division of Insurance, for those Nevada-regulated plans, there is what is called a Network Adequacy Advisory Council. Um, our current president, Howard Barron, has been serving on that for a few years as a physician representative, but there are also patient advocates and insurance representatives on that on that commission. Access to health care is on that commission. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's that good. Are, yeah, yeah, that's good. And, um, you know, through that, they make recommendations to the commissioner, you know, here's what we collectively agree would be at least the bare minimum for an adequate network. Um, we have learned through that that we have some insufficient data that we don't really know if we're quantifying. Yeah, we did We did a podcast just a few weeks ago on uh, – network adequacy to a certain extent. It was on the physician shortage. Yeah. And Dr. Pasternak was on here and John Packham. And, you know, we know that there is a huge physician shortage, especially in family practice here in the state of Nevada. Right. Yeah. And we have to face that with the real numbers. I mean, we have to know our, our, we feel anecdotally that the networks are inadequate. Maybe not all the networks all the time, but most of the networks a lot of the time because we we know we have loved ones that I can't they can't get in to see someone or or there really isn't you know a hematologist on there there's some other somewhat related right. specialists that really can't help with that problem so so we know that as a knee jerk but we can't demonstrate that and then until you have data it's very difficult to make policy recommendations to the right. legislators so tell me um, and Dr. Pasternak it, your feeling on this did a Democratic majority in the Senate and the Assembly impact this session from a health care standpoint and having Democratic governor? I think this year with having Democrats in control of the governor's office and in both houses, um, there was a there was obviously a push to do some things with health care. Um, there was some talk initially about, you know, Medicare for all, a lot of that sort of uh, fizzled out once it, you know, once we, once they, I think the Democrats started looking at how they were going to do that. There was like, this is going to be a harder issue. But, um, you know, in my mind, there was a lot of really good, um, patient advocacy bills that came out of this legislative session, um, things that help patients. And, um, you know, uh, for me, one of the highlights, and I wouldn't say this was so much as a democratic control, but since we had women in the majority of both, uh, of both houses, uh, there was some really good legislation that came out, and I think it was um, a lot of our women, female legislators working across party lines um, that passed some really good laws that are going to help our state. Including, by the way, one of our, our public health initiative, which was AB 169, which established a Nevada Maternal Mortality Review Committee. Mm-hmm. So instances of maternal mortality or death of the mom from pregnancy through the first year of the baby's life are increasing in the United States, um, the only really well-developed country where this is happening. And so this new commission will study those cases and and develop some best practices. And there's a federal movement to do this, and we were really encouraged. It passed unanimously. I think it had every single female legislator 
as an actual co-sponsor, and it became something the governor really cared about, and, and it really just sailed through with a lot of support. So we were really proud of that initiative and that effort that, that, you know, that we, we pushed. So I'm going to uh, go back to something you said a few minutes ago about the female majority and being able to address some of these issues perhaps uh, a little more readily. Why do you think that is? Um, I think it's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, and I think it'll be interesting to see what other states, I think a lot of other states are going to look at Nevada and our, this legislative session and what happened. You know, the, the, I, I think that there was a real opportunity for our female legislators to say, hey, we want to get something done this year. And it was a, a lot of our female legislators, again, on both sides of the aisle, um, we're like, hey, we're giving an opportunity here. Um, you know, we were sort of laughing about this. And, you know, I, one of the concerns we've always heard in terms of being involved with politics is, well, it's an old boys club. And we said, well, we don't have an old boys club anymore. Um, and so I think it was, like I said, it was really refreshing. I think there was a lot of, uh, in a way, the, the, the women, again, on both sides of the aisle, came together on some legislation that I think was going to be beneficial. So... Fair enough. Fair enough. I think, and this isn't meant to say that men are afraid of this, but (laughs) I I will just say candidly, I think that this particular group of female legislators also are are excellent legislators, and um, and they weren't afraid to roll up their sleeves and take on some tough issues. Um, So I I definitely think you know the tenor in, in the building was different this year. Um, not only do we have a female majority, but we have women in very influential places within, you know, the, the new director of Medicaid is, is female. The the chief of staff for the governor is, is female. Um, I wouldn't say that it it was drastically different, but I would say it did heighten some concerns or some issues like women's health um, in a way that may not have happened if we didn't have that majority. So 200 bills involved in health care this session. Is that a large number? Is that an unusual number in a session? Well, we, we try really hard to keep NSMA focused on health care-related bills because um, we feel that the physicians should really speak to things that people want to know what physicians think about. It, it's about 20% um, of the legislation is health care-related. And those are significant bills. And um, I think it's a high percentage. I think that it's about, it's similar to the percentages we've been seeing as state legislators are taking more and more of an active role in healthcare in general. So, what would we say to somebody who feels that uh, healthcare is too regulated? Well, healthcare is going to be regulated. I mean, the, the, both the state and the federal governments are involved in healthcare and they're going to want to have a say in how their dollars are being used and you know and also there uh, there needs to be some public protection i mean there there are things that happen at hospitals clinics within physicians that um you know there needs to be some regulations around some of these issues i think you know our biggest task is always talking to the legislators about we understand your intentions of doing these some of these things, and we we uh, agree with them in some ways. But here are some of the realities that are going to take place um, if these are implemented. Um, a good a good example this year is there was a bill talking about mandatory electronic prescribing, and um, while there's a big upside to some e-prescribing for a lot of patients, it's uh, a lot of patients still like to get their prescriptions on paper. That way, they can shop around, find best prices. Um, and so we sort of got, and we wanted to sit down with with uh, the, the people behind the bill and say, okay, we understand your intentions. And really, a lot of their intentions were about um, uh, trying to control diversion of opioids and narcotics through e-prescribing. So we kind of sat down. We said, okay, that's your goals with the bill. Let's help you craft this a little bit better, so you're getting what you need out of the bill. But physicians are still able to take care of patients in the most efficient way. So, yeah, some of the some of the regulations, I think, um, you know, they we understand what, how they make sense, but we always have to make sure that our legislators understand how that's going to impact impact how the physicians actually care for our patients. 
So let's talk a little bit before the session and some of, you know, a little bit about how the sausage is made uh, before the session and before you get there. And the advocacy committee is who's on the I know that you two are on the advocacy committee. How many people are on it? So we, we have a governmental affairs committee that meets throughout the year. Uh, and then during the legislative session, we have a specific legislative committee uh, that meets once a week on Monday yeah. nights. <laughs> <laughs> I have my Monday nights back. Yeah. Uh, and so we have, uh, I was one of the co-chairs this year. We had a co-chair um, uh, down in the south with Dr. Keith Brill. And then we probably had a, a core group of probably between 15 and 20 people that would either attend every week or call in. Um, and it was literally Kat and her legislative team would sit down and say, these are the hot bills. This is what's getting talked about. We need feedback, you know. Uh, and so, um, and it, it's a really fun process because I come, you know, I'll come in with my thoughts of, boy, this bill's good or bad. Um, but then, you know, one of my friends and colleagues who's a specialist may say, well, yeah, but you didn't think about this, this, and this. I'm like, those are really good points. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's a, it, it's a, it was a lot of work this year, but, um, you know, I think the fact that we have such a diverse group of physicians, right. it really, uh, we're able to really churn through a lot of the, or really kind of think through a lot of the, the implications of a lot of these bills. And your role, Kat, is to organize all this and keep it going? That's right. That's right. My, and then deliver the message. Yeah, heard the cats. <laughs> heard right. the cats. Yeah. Um, and it's a fantastic job. I mean, it, I have so much respect for the physicians in our state, and particularly during the session when they're dealing from everything from, you know, opioid prescribing rules to laws that would impede their ability to practice or insurance issues or public health issues. Um, we, we do have, like Dr. Pasternak said, we do have a fairly diverse group that do those Monday night calls, and that's good. I mean, we don't want everyone getting on the call saying, yep, we agree, let's move on to the next thing. We want someone to, to, to pipe up and say, well, hold on a minute, and it forces us to really work through things. Um, and then we, and then we, I take that instruction and I know either we can fully embrace and try to protect this piece of legislation, we need to fight this piece of legislation, or we need to try to work it out with the proponents to get something that will work for the best for the patients and the physicians. So it's a, it's a, it's a lot of work, but it's a very fun, I think, very fun way to represent the docs. And once the session begins, what's the process? Well, you have prior to the session you have what's called bill drafts and so you kind of know and and most of the themes that people are thinking about what they're going to draft legislation and we've worked really hard to develop some great relationships with our legislators so that's ongoing whether we're in session or not um once the legislature starts we have 120 days to get things accomplished i mean our rules on signy die or the last you know the last moments of session are very strong and so there's not really a lot of time to waste. Um, as the bills drop or even before they drop, we're already working on them. Um, we, know, we knew there was going to be a bill uh, to ban uh, balanced billing and surprise, surprise medical bills for emergency services. For us, we see this as a, a lapse in coverage issue. Um, but really, the patient receives a bill they weren't expecting or, or, or learns that the insurance isn't going to cover a bill that they probably were expecting. Um, we knew that was going to happen. The governor promised he was going to do something with it. We'd been working all through the interim on trying to reach a deal. So we that's what we spent the first entire half of the session working on, negotiating that deal. Um, ultimately, some legislation did pass on that. It's AB 469. Um, it... it it does ban um, balance billing in certain emergency situations, but it does include some protections in there for people who are in existing contracts. It does require the insurers to pay reasonable payments or go to arbitration. Um, and there's some transparency and reporting provisions in there as well. Um, as well as in the arbitration, we were able to secure like a small claim style arbitration for those medical bills that are under $5,000. So, it, if we weren't there, this would have passed as a outright ban on balanced billing. Um, we were there. We were able to mitigate it and make it as, as good as possible. And we've had some calls from our colleagues nationally saying, you know what, you did a pretty good job of trying to reach some 
balance, I hate to use that word in this <laughs> for this topic, but reaching some fairness in legislation that does change the way that um, these these bills are done. Well, let's get into the weeds a little bit on some of these bills. AB 239, um, Controlled Prescription Revisions. It implemented new rules to address the prescription opioid crisis. What was that about, and why was that so important to you all this time? So two years ago in the last legislative session, uh, you know, Governor Sandoval made it a high priority to uh, – that was – sort of at the peak of the opioid crisis, and especially in Nevada. And, um, and so there was a big push to, to implement this new bill that um, impacted how physicians prescribe opioids and other controlled substances. Um, the bill had a, some really good parts of it, and it had some parts that we just felt as physicians needed to be revised. Um, so, you know, basically this was a way of we had two years to work with, with the initial bill, Let's go in. Let's change some of the wording. Let's change some of the revisions. For example, one of the things was for patients on who are in hospice, who are basically end-of-life patients on hospice, um, we don't have to go through as much of the paperwork. We still have to do some of it, but in terms of um, you know doing uh, uh, assessments of you know are they going to get addicted to these medications or some of these issues. Uh, we're we're trying to streamline that for patients on hospice and palliative medicine because it's frankly at that point it's we're not worried about them getting addicted to opioids or diverting opioids and things like that. So that the bill really kind of helped with some carve outs that way and kind of helped streamline the, the way physicians can care for their patients and prescribe medica- opioid medications when appropriate. So let's talk a little bit. Take the the opioid uh, bill AB two thirty nine. Who originally writes that? Let's talk a little bit about that and inform the people that are listening because somebody with a medical background has put these bills together. They may not have done it in a way that, you know, it may need to be tweaked, but who is it that writes them originally? Well, well, really, NSMA started this bill, um, and when this was a product of the 18 months of work in the interim. Um, and we, we worked with uh, the health committee, the interim health committee, um, initially, and and the legislator at the time that was involved in that, um, and we also worked with the board of pharmacy because the board of pharmacy regulates all prescribers of um, controlled substance. You know, they give the prescribing licenses and the controlled substance licenses for the state, and so we wanted to make sure that we were basically asking for things that kept in place the major tenets of patient protections that were in AB four seventy four but created as much flexibility as we could get for the providers. Uh, so we, we started a series of meetings with all of our special specialty um, groups or physicians to say, what does pain management need? What does ER need? What do the primary care docs need? How can we streamline this? Um, in addition to hospice and palliative, uh, we needed to get some exemptions for oncology, and we actually got some exemptions for sickle cell disease um, because they're you know, their intention and treatment is just is just different than in acute pain or chronic pain unrelated to oncology. Uh, so as we worked through, we really made a wish list. I think there were about 10 things on the wish list. And we worked with the sponsor. And once he agreed to um, carry it and we had sign off by um, people at the state and people at the Board of Pharmacy, it got you know, tr- submitted as a BDR, a bill draft request to the Legislative Council Bureau, and then they really draft the legal language. And it comes out, and it doesn't have the exemptions in it, and it doesn't have some other things in it. And so then we we work on getting an amendment. In this particular case, the sponsor left uh, the legislature during the session, so we needed to get a new sponsor. Um, we were able to get the majority leader, Teresa Benitez-Thompson, uh, to take this bill on, and we were so grateful for that. And then we worked through it, and it needed to be amended in both the Assembly and the Senate, but I think it came out the way that we had intended. Well, the reason I wanted that explanation is because you <laughs> mo- both make it sound so easy, and I know it's not. <laughs> I just want you to know. Yeah. I want to, It's not easy. Yeah. It is very lengthy. Um, let's talk about AB 169, the mater- Maternal Mortality Review Committee. You yeah. mentioned that a few minutes ago, mm-hmm. Kat, and talked about how that was a real achievement. Mm-hmm. So why was it right now to do this? See, that always I'm always sort of interested in that is, why didn't we do this a decade ago? What Was the timing right on this? Was the yeah. support right on this? It's a great question 
because we have a list of things we'd love to do at the legislature and we try to prioritize them. And then we see where the stars are lining up and we go for what we can get. Um, I think this was the exact right time. It is probably a little too late, um, not too late, but a little later than we would like. Um, but it was the exact right time to bring this bill. Uh, we This was brought to us by some of our OBGYNs that are working on this nationally and, and in the state. Um, there have been some efforts at the national level. The national level uh, in the federal government, they passed some grant funding for states that set up maternal mortality review committees like this. Um, I know that Senator Kamala Harris is very involved in this. I think Elizabeth Warren has mentioned maternal health on her campaign trail, and I'm sure many of the other candidates have. I mentioned to you already the numbers of of increasing deaths, too, which is sort of startling in a country like ours that has all of these um, resources available. Mm -hmm. So, And we had the support of the state. Um, Vicki Ives and some of the others that work in the, in the division at DHHS, they, they were there helping as well. So something like that is a financial ask as well as a policy ask. So it was getting the policy pieces in place and working the financial pieces as well. And once the financial pieces fell into place and all the legislators were educated and understood what the bill did, honestly, the bill did sail through. We had this tremendous support of Chairwoman Cohen and Chairwoman Ratty, um, both the health care committees. And, and once the governor stepped up to take it on, it really we really didn't have a problem. So tell me, Dr. Pasternak, what will this committee do? How will it impact maternal mortality? So, you know, you never know how to, if uh, you have to you have to be reviewing things. You have to be studying things to know if you're getting better or you're getting worse. And right now in our state, when we have uh, problems with more, more maternal mor mortality, we don't have a systematic way in our state to look at, well, what are the factors involved with that? Is it Was it an issue with prenatal care? Was it um, just a bad outcome? Was it an issue with uh, was there something happening at the hospital level or something happening with the OBGYN? So really, this is a way for the state to kind of look at all these cases and start to look to see if there's any patterns uh, first. And, and then if there are some patterns, what can we then do to, to fix some of those issues? You know, if it's an issue with getting access to, to prenatal care, what can we do with those kind of issues? So that's that's really, I mean, before we know what sort of interventions we need to to do, we have to look at what are the root causes, and that's what this committee is going to do. And when do you think it'll start? Well, we're supposed to hear by the end of August about the this round of funding from the federal government. So we did pass the bill in time to qualify for this round. And if that uh, occurs, I believe it will start by the first of the year. And so. will there be a uh, staff person for this committee and they a director for it? And will be it housed in the north or the south? Do we uh, know? It's a statewide entity. I think it will probably run out of the north like the Infant Mortality mm -hmm. um, Review Committee does just, just out of Carson City. Um, and it, it has a diverse group of, of types of people that should be included by um, background, professional background, and also diversity and also where they live, things like that. So it should represent a broad cross-section of Nevada. Um, it does have staff. It does have a staff person to help um, with it. I think that they will probably meet, you know, three to four times a year. And then they do report both to the legislature and to the state um, on an annual basis. And in that report will include not just sort of the objective findings they had, but any recommendations that they might have. So we looked at, you know, California and one of the areas in Southern California, they had um, women dying once they started connecting the dots. It, it tended to be a blood a blood pressure issue. And so they were able to put in some different practices in the hospitals, um, you know, some additional checks before they discharged. I mean, things like that. So we'll see. We'll see what, what the data tells us. So let's talk about the, the out-of-network billing, AB 469, which we mentioned mm -hmm. a little earlier. But this is a big one. Yep. I mean, we all, yep. you know, this is a big one federally, too. Right. Yes. And it's one that has impacted so many people that end up declaring medical bankruptcy sometimes because of this. Right. So talk to me about a little bit about the making of this bill and how it got to the session and then what happened during the session. So there was a group convened right at the beginning of um, 2018. 
of insurance, hospitals, physicians, uh, physician representatives, um, emergency transport. And we met every month, sometimes more than once a month, to figure out what is a fair and reasonable solution to this problem. Um, I will correct one th- one thing or just add a little context to so the problem of, of medical bankruptcy sometimes is a high deductible problem and not an out-of-network problem. Um, when we really dug into the numbers, we really found that out-of-network billing was really about 4% in the state. So it's a little bit less of a, of a problem than I think we've been led to believe. But when it is a problem, it is a significant problem, and I think we all acknowledge that. Um, for the physicians, I think we all we've ever really wanted is to make sure we're actually protecting the patients and that we're getting a fair reimbursement for the work that has been done um, in a way that won't take away from the contracting market, won't unfairly leverage one side over the other. So with that in mind, I mean, we started meeting with the hospitals as other providers of services to develop a, a set of shared principles to make sure we were on the same page. One of the key pro- provisions there was we want to make sure that patients are protected in an emergency as if they were a prudent layperson. Um, we are seeing insurers across the country deny things after the fact or threaten to deny things after the fact if it wasn't a true emergency. And we have federal law and ethics, and really we just want people to go to the emergency room if they feel that they're having an emergency and then be protected. So that was a big piece of it. Um, ultimately, the hospitals and the insurers started making some headway in what they felt was a fair payment with the idea that they were going to protect existing contracts at a certain percentage of contract. So, for example, if Hospital A was in network with insurance company B and for some reason they fell out of contract, then within that first 12 months they'd get a certain percentage over the contract as the as the reimbursement rate. For the second 12 months, they'd get an additional enhancement over the contract to try to put pressure on both parties to get back into contract. After the 24 months, it would just go straight to an exchange of offers and then to an arbitration. Um, the physicians uh, ended up with something a little similar in that there is protection for existing contracts for the first 12 months um, but then after that, if there's or if there's never been a contract or after those 12 months, there will be an exchange of offers between the physician and the insurer. And then hopefully they'll resolve it. But if not, then each side's number essentially goes to the arbitrator and the arbitrator will pick one. Was there a discussion in this about the patient who, say, goes to an emergency room and that hospital emergency room is on their insurance but the ER doc is not, and being more, uh, letting the patient know. Was there anything about being more upfront with the patient? More, more transparent. More transparent. Um, there is transparency pieces in the bill, um, but it, it doesn't exactly attack it at that level. Um, so if you, if you go to an emergency room now and your emergency hospital is in network, but your physician is not, then the hospital will be reimbursed at the contract rate and the physician will be reimbursed under this law. And I think, you know, from a physician standpoint, um, you know, my wife's an anesthesiologist and, you know, when she gets called in to do a case in the middle of the night, the last thing, the first thing she wants to do is talk to the patient, find out the medical problem and do what's safe for them. Mm -hmm. The last thing our physicians want to do is you know, make their first question, what's your insurance company? Oh, you're not in my network. So, you know, that's really, you know, our focus was we want to make sure that the physicians are focused on the patient, focused on taking care of the patient in these emergent situations. And then let's figure out the billing and insurance stuff afterwards. So in terms of that transparency, it's a tough, yeah, in a perfect world, the, the, the patients would know that up front. But in a lot of cases, you know, if you're in a car accident, you're not going to have much of an opportunity to say, oh, well, you're not my network. I'm going to go over to a different place because all their, you know. So, you know, really the idea is when when it's these urgent, emergent issues, let's get the care taken care of. Let's take care of the patients and then let's make sure, the you know, the billing's taken care of afterwards. Understandable. And uh, 
in our line of business at Access to Healthcare, we we tend to hear from the patient, right. and and they're um, you know and they're very passionate about the seat they're sitting in. Yes. And without a total understanding of the complexity of the situation. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there is some responsibility on the physicians to bill fairly. Um, and I think we've taken that responsibility. Um, there is responsibility on the insurers to let their let their insureds know up front, you know, that, hey, we're not in contract with this hospital anymore. You can see the emergency physician there, but you, you're not going to be able to, yeah. you know, be covered in the hospital. Well, so much um, is based on a shared responsibility anyway. It is. It is. <laughs> but, you know, physicians through their code of ethics and also by federal law, they don't do wallet checks in an emergency. Mm-hmm. They take care of the patient. And, right. and whatever the re- end result is, if it's this bill Right. You know, or if it's something else federally. Well, and in the moment, patients are very happy that that's your right. code of conduct. <laughs> and then afterwards, when they get the bill, they're not so happy. It's uh, it's uh, an interesting uh, dilemma. It is. This, right. this bill went before the session in 2017. Not this bill, a different bill. A different bill. Trying to attack the same issue. The same issue. Right. And this time it sounds like uh, that there was... Uh, people were more willing maybe to come to the table and deal with this? I think that's right. I mean, it, the 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 proposal was a little more balanced in this one. Um, we actually sought a veto of the legislation in 2017 because we felt that it was very um, one-sided to the, to the insurers. And we are seeing some provisions like that pop up in the federal legislation. But if you say that if, – if you say that if an insurance – does not contract with a physician, and then the physician treats one of their insureds, and all the insurance ever has to do is pay their average contract rate or a certain percentage of Medicare, there's never going to be an incentive for that insurance to contract with that physician. And then we get back to network adequacy standards. So why not just contract with one physician, one, one ER group, and not worry about that because you're covered. You only ever have to pay your average contract rate. So those it's, are some of the problems that we see popping up. It's very clear, Dr. Pasternak, that Kat is here to hold up to advocate for the physicians. It's very, very clear. <laughs> She's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about SB 361. This bill would allow for pharmacies to prescribe, order, and dispense prescription contraceptive medications. What happened with this bill? This bill died at sine die. Um, We worked on this bill actually quite a bit with the uh, majority leader, Nicole Canazaro, um, Senator Canazaro, and her staff. Uh, We were opposed to the provision that is pharmacists prescribe. But we were looking at ways to make it work for the Nevada patient. I suspect it will be back. Um, if not in legislation, then potentially through some regulatory work. Um, most physicians feel that uh, birth control should be over the counter. The problem is if it's over the counter, it's not covered by insurance. Uh, so we want to make sure that birth control is covered and available and accessible. But also, pharmacists don't prescribe. It's not in their scope of practice. So what we had talked about doing was a standing order that would allow pharmacists to dispense pursuant to a protocol. So, Dr. Pasternak, you feel that uh, a woman should be able to get birth control over the counter. Yeah, I mean, this was a good example of, I think the intent of the bill was, let's try to make birth control more more accessible for women in Nevada. And, and so this was a good example of where, like, we agree 100% with the intent of the bill, the mechanism of doing that. Let's maybe try to tweak that a little bit. And, again, it, it sort of died this year, but I think I know our medical society, especially, you know, the, the our providers who are involved with women's health are um, all – all in favor of trying to make birth control more accessible uh, and while keeping it affordable. Amen to that. (laughs) (laughs) You're not going to get an argument from me on that one. You wanted to add something, Kat? I just wanted to add that, you know, there were some concerns that um, women don't neglect their annual exams or their biannual exams. So, um, but I think that we had gotten to a, a pretty happy place by the end of session. I think that we will be interested in working on this in the future. Well, historically, there's so many things over the counter now that used to be prescriptions. So this is a, a painful but much-needed process that we've all gone through before yep. Yep. for many medications. Let's talk about um, 
AB 310, the original bill was going to mandate that all providers send all prescriptions electronically to pharmacies. What happened with that one, and what was the stand from the the medical society? So, again, that was one that um, once we sat down with the legislators who were involved with this and said, okay, what's your intent with this? A lot of it was really around the idea of... um, uh, with controlled substances and, you know, diversion of controlled substances. Uh, you know, if you give someone a paper script, the ability for a patient maybe to shop that prescription around to different pharmacies is a lot easier. There are some real uh, advantages to e-prescribing, um, sending things electronically. I think uh, I do it in my office and, and I feel uh, confident about doing it. I feel that there is some uh, additional security with it. Um, but for a lot of our providers in our state, um, they're not, they may not be on electronic prescribing systems. Um, in some of the, especially in some of the rural settings, it's a little bit trickier. Um, you know, the, there was, uh, this was one I actually got to testify in person on, which was really fun because I got to stand up and say, I'm the only person you're here who's ever sent an e-prescription. <laughs> um, you know, and, and uh, but that was, that's part of the, what we try to do as a state medical society is we had, there was someone there from one of the big e-prescribing companies. And, um, you know, my perspective is, well, I'm the physician. I'm the only person who's ever sent an e-script. Um, there are some real advantages to it, but there's it doesn't always work. Um, a lot of patients may not like it. So, you know, this was one where we kind of sat down. Um, we talked about there's going to be some federal leg- legislation coming down the line that uh, is going to probably start mandating uh, a little bit more e-prescribing. So we tried to match things up with some of the federal prescribing, and I think we came up with a, a policy that, that – and we also um, got some exclusions put in there um, for certain practices, certain situations, um, that if e-prescribing isn't, uh, if, if, if there may be an issue with where e-prescribing may get in the way of taking care of a patient, we got some exceptions put in there. So I think this was a really good example of, um, you know, sitting down with the legislature, finding out what their goals were and then saying, okay, we understand your goals, but let's tweak this in a way that, you know, patients can still get the medications they need. So it was really a compromise. I mean, people came together. It, it really was a compromise um, position, and I, I do want to credit the the pharm, pharmacy industry uh, for working with us on this because not all of their members really wanted to give. I mean, some of them really just want all e-prescribing of every everything. Um, but this was Speaker Frierson's bill, who who's a really very good legislator. Um, and once we understood, like Andy said, that it was really after more protections on the opioid side, we were able to narrow it to just controlled substances. That will give people time to get on board with e-prescribing um, other things if they choose to or or not. So um, I think ultimately we're happy. We don't like to see a lot of unfunded mandates. We generally oppose them. We did start off opposing this one, but ultimately we're able to compromise to a livable situation. So let me ask each of you, What do you think was um, your biggest disappointment in this session? Dr. Pasternak. Uh, There were some bills talking about some immunization issues uh, and sort of the idea behind the bill was to sort of streamline the way the state was going to uh, uh, collect and and look at uh, kids who are having immunization exemptions. Um, again, so we can kind of look at things. Also, it sort of standardized the way that the school districts are reporting immunized exemptions. Um, that got uh, that got shot down. Um, there was a lot of conflict with it, and, and we ended up ba- basically just sort of letting the bill die. Um, I do think we need to tighten that up. Um, I'm a big pro-immunization advocate. I, I think our state needs to look at uh, I'm, there are kids who need to be exempt from immunizations, but I think we need to take a serious look and make sure that those are legitimate reasons. I know in other states, well, California, uh, Cal- California, California, right? And I was just going to bring up California. They have a way of looking at it, and it's really a, it's it's sort of a handful of physicians who are providing the majority of exemptions and. Uh, I wish our state had that same capacity to do that. So that was probably, out of all the the bills, that uh, that was probably the one for me that was most disappointing. What about you, Kat? 
You know, I, I would have to say I have a pretty, I would agree with Dr. Pashnak. That was a big public health um, bill that we were working on. Um, but I, I have just a general positive feeling about the 2019 session. I mean, we we approached it with a little trepidation. We knew we were up against a lot of big challenges, but we made things better where we could. And most of the things that were problematic didn't end up passing. Um, we have some ongoing interest in doing more on the insurance space and streamlining some prior authorization requirements and working on some of those things. Uh, but we got our major, major goals accomplished. And I think that there's always going to be a lot more work we can do. So we have some goals for 2021. So Dr. Pasternak, what do you think was the greatest success of all the bills or of all the advocacy? What do you think was the greatest success this session? Um, I think from a public standpoint, from a patient standpoint, I think some of the balanced billing stuff, uh, just because that does have an impact. You know, there's some horrible stories about that. So I think the fact that we're starting to make some headway, you know, and we'll have two years to see how this bill works. And um, and we may need to revisit this in two years. But I think at least we've made some headway that way. And, and you know, when patients get stuck with bills that they aren't expecting, that's, we all hear about it. What about you, Kat? It's like trying to choose my favorite child. (laughs) I'm really proud of our work in the opioid space, and I hope that that will help patients get their prescriptions that they need um, and help physicians feel more comfortable prescribing when when it's necessary. I'm very proud of the Maternal Mortality Review Committee, and those were both bills that we we did from the scrap from the ground up and, and got done. Um, and then the ones that you've mentioned that we were able to negotiate better deals. So I think it was good. We, we raised the profile of the physicians in Carson City. We continue to improve those relationships. And so I, I feel very proud of how, how we did this session. So And what's the top, the top uh, issue that you would like to see to go into the next session? What the top issue to work on for the I, next? I haven't two even years. started thinking. We're still recovering from this last one. <laughs> I think our physicians. I think Kat yeah. has a few. Yeah. I do. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I think our physicians are getting really fatigued with prior authorizations, um, and it's really impacting patients' ability to continue their course of treatment. I have a very good friend that is on um, anti-rejection medications, and every month has to go through the same stress and rigmarole of trying to figure out if it's going to be covered and can we get it done and she's going to be on it for life so why not do it once a year and and be done with it and let her have 11 months of just picking up her medications so I think there's some things that we'll want to work on in that space. Well I think this has been a fantastic dialogue and I knew a lot about the Nevada State Medical Association but I'll tell you you really opened my eyes to the kind of work that you do and the impact that it has on the citizens in Nevada so I personally want to thank you for all the time and effort because and I know Dr. Pasternak this is uh, dear to your heart but I also know that you spend a lot of your own time that you could be out kayaking doing this so um, <laughs> or playing the tuba or playing the tuba <laughs> he's a real so renaissance wanna, man yes, yeah. I want to thank you both we've been discussing the Nevada 2019 legislative session and the impact on health care and my guests have been Uh, Kat O'Mara, who's the executive director of the Nevada State Medical Association, and Dr. Andy Pasternak, local family practice physician and co-chair of the Nevada State Medical Association. I want to thank you for listening. A list of our future podcasts go to accesstohealthcare.org slash podcast.